0: This is Subject Matter, the show for creators who want to grow with audio. I'm Ben Bradbury. How do you create content that someone wants to consume? Well, the simplest, but certainly not easiest way, in my mind, is to create something that no one has heard of before, something that doesn't exist, a fresh new value proposition. And today's episode of Subject Matter with my guest, Jeremy Enns, the founder and CEO of Creative Wayfinding and the creator behind it is all about creating content that hooks people in. Jeremy's got 15 years in creative work and he pointed out that a lot of technical people don't like the marketing side of content. A lot of the marketers in content don't like the technical side, but in Jeremy's words, he wants to swim in both of them. He loves the intersection of them and he's built a really unique brand that kind of encompasses this along with his six years as a full-time traveler. In this episode, we're going to get into the nitty gritty of podcast formats and why hooks often have what is called a device that guides the conversation. We're gonna go through three or four examples, unpack them so you can see this principle in action. We're gonna understand why intuition is often underrated in the creative process and how you can use more of that. And we'll also talk about how Jeremy has specialized with creative wayfinding and why specializing your product can be such a great way to serve either other creators or to serve audiences as a creator too. This is a great interview. Jeremy's a friend of mine. We've had some amazing conversations and it's great to actually get one of them on the mic for the first time. I think you guys are really gonna enjoy this one. Thanks for tuning in and let me know what you think. As always, you can reach me via email or on Twitter you know where to find me. I'm ben at workweek.com or at Bradbury underscore on Twitter. Please enjoy, and I will speak to you soon. Jeremy, I can't quite believe that I haven't had you as a guest on subject matter. We've had so many conversations, but this is actually our first podcast together. So this really is an honor and a privilege. It's great to have you on the show. Yeah, I mean, uh, likewise,
1: also an honor and a privilege. After our many conversations about all things podcasting, and uh, have had some conversations with some other pretty impressive creators as well. When uh, I was visiting New York over the summer, and we were talking with Danny Miranda, and uh, his process is fascinating as well. So excited to be on the podcast to do this one-on-one for and allow other people into the uh,
0: the conversation. Totally, yeah. That dinner with Danny is legendary. I'm still still need to get to the book recommendations that we shared there. <laughs> Let's go back in time to when you first got into the creator economy, because you've dabbled as a podcaster. You're now more on the back end, helping other podcasters grow and market their shows. Talk us through how you found your way into the weird and wonderful world of podcasting. Yeah,
1: so I, I guess I don't know when the creator economy was coined as a phrase, but I've been doing creative projects for much longer than that. When I started to think about this fairly recently, and it's probably been certainly like 15 years probably that I've been doing, you know, some kind of creative work. And maybe that even goes back further to childhood. But I got into to music as a teenager, picked up the guitar, got really into metal and, and hardcore music, and played in a couple bands throughout high school and afterwards. And so that was kind of my entry point into what later became kind of, you know, podcasting, I suppose that kind of was the seed that was planted there was coming in through the music side of things as a songwriter, musician, performer, and a couple years into that, I guess I've been playing music for a number of years already, but, you know, you're just kind of like told you absorb this as a kid that, you know, making a career as a musician is just like, <laughs> is not something that would actually happen, that there's no chance at it. You know, today, I wish I if I knew then what I knew now, I think I actually like probably could have done it in some respect, whether that's like touring the world, or it's like making stock music or royalty free music, or like, I think there's ways that I could have made a career out of music. But at the time, wasn't really thinking about that. I wasn't thinking that was a possibility. So I went actually to audio engineering school because that seemed
0: like that was this like established career where you could get a job. And can I uh, can I just interject? This is such a fascinating thread you've said of If I knew what I knew now, I think I could have made it as a musician. Mm -hmm. What do you think, if we go back in time, like what do you think you would have applied back then that would have let you make it as an artist?
1: Yeah, I mean, the really funny thing is like, I love like the analytical technical side of things, but I'm also like very much have this balance between like, I love data and numbers and I love art. And I feel like I have now really balanced, I'm really balanced between those two back then i don't know that i was as much into the like analytical research side of things and so i think if i had the mindset now like one of one of my kind of dreams that maybe it'll happen one day is that i'll just be able to like apply all my marketing knowledge to you know and then mash it with like the songwriting and musicality and all of that kind of stuff to like write music that people like that will do well and part of my like marketing brain feels like i could do that another part of me knows like i haven't written or played music in many years so i would be really rusty and i don't know what my like taste is like anymore but I think a couple of things there's the understanding of like almost this jobs to be done approach kind of of that I apply to many marketing things like what are people listening to a certain type of music for and how can you like create that as long as it like aligns with what you want to create as well which is like kind of a super lame way to think about music in one sense because it feels like music certainly has this you know artistic genius element to it but there's also that anecdote about the Beatles sitting around and like I think it's um Paul says to them, like, let's write a swimming pool or something like that, where it's like, we're going to like set out to write a song that is super popular and we're going to like take a rigorous approach to it. And so I think that there's, you know, the best musicians certainly have that approach. And you could say certainly pop music is like super heavy on that. Being into alternative music styles, maybe less so. Mm. But I think that that is the one thing. And then I think the other thing is just like belief. I think that now I do creative work and work for myself. And I think it's when I look back, I'm like, oh, I actually took the same career path that would have been necessary to make it as a musician, but I just am kind of applying a different craft, so to speak.
0: Wow, I love the belief portion, speaks a lot to the journey that you've gone on as well as a creator and, and an operator. It's also interesting to me hearing you talk about the use of data and numbers. I was having breakfast with a friend yesterday and we were talking about the music industry and he said, you know, there are some cities that musicians can go to and you just, they know that they're going to pop off. So for example, here in New York, if Kate Trinada comes to play, he's going to sell out pretty much any venue that he goes to for multiple nights in a row. So guess what? He comes to New York at least once a year, if not more, because he knows that's going to be his hub. And so it's interesting kind of thinking that through from a or thinking about music from a data perspective, if you were a musician, where are your local fans? And likewise as a creator, where your local fans would be as well. And that you can kind of situate that to the internet where they live, but also offline where those kind of communities would be too. So, so you were saying you diverted from the musician path in an alternative reality, your name is up in lights and you're selling <laughs> out stadiums. But in this reality, you went to audio engineering school. Please continue on the journey yeah so i grew up in the, the middle
1: of canada in the prairies moved to vancouver which is a much bigger hub for music and recording i was like one of the global hubs in the 80s for like the, actually the studio i interned at was like motley Crue, metallica aerosmith van halen like recorded there some of their cool. biggest albums all in that studio under different ownership now but there was this like legacy there and so went through schools interned at the studio kind of realized fairly quickly that this was not the career path that I thought it was where it basically is like, you need to sell yourself as a freelancer and bring your own work. And you're not really getting hired onto a big studio unless you like the people who were moving up the ladder ahead of me. I was interning like a day or two a week because I had a full time job. There were people who like lived in their cars and were there like 8am first in in the morning and like last out at 4am the next morning and like doing that every single day. And so they were getting hired on for like, you know, $11 an hour or something like that, like an assistant engineer or something like that. And so like, it's really hard to make a career like being hired as a sound engineer, unless you get more into the film side of things, which I always thought was fascinating, but was not really, you know, what I was was into. And so I kind of left the audio engineering side of things, did a bunch of manual labor jobs, saved up to go traveling, took a year off and, and traveled for a year. And then kind of over that span, realize, like, man, I, I want to spend more time traveling. Like, how can I is it possible to have a career where I can do more of this? Did not know about the world of like online business yet. This was back in 2013, 2014. So I was kind of just still kind of coming of age, but came back. And like almost immediately after I got back from that trip, discovered podcasts and the first shows that I, I went like searching through iTunes at the time. And it was just like, what do I even search for here? Like creative business, something like this and immediately discovered like Pat Flynn's Smart Passive Income and all those type of shows that were really about this whole like online business thing. And so kind of dove into those. And I'd say maybe about six months in, I kind of realized like, oh, all my like audio engineering skills, I'm listening to so many podcasts. And all these podcasts need producers like this is actually really easy if you're used to working in a studio. And so kind of made that transition and started getting freelance clients. And I think it was within six months had enough to quit my day job. And that was the rest of history, I suppose, to some extent.
0: Wow, six months is a pretty quick turnaround to be able to go from get dipping your toe into something to then quitting your day job. What do you, in that six-month time frame, what do you attribute to your ability to monetize your skills so quickly? How did you manage that? Yeah, I think the one thing, like as any
1: freelancer, I think you always have this, or any business owner, you always have this Initial kind of imposter syndrome where, when you don't have any testimonials, you don't have any portfolio, and you're like, How is anybody supposed to hire me? I haven't done anything, and like, there's nothing for them to base it on. But I had this confidence of like, it was kind of almost this like a little bit of like arrogance of like, Well, I'm actually an audio engineer, I know so much more than you know, 98% of people who are working on podcasts. And so like, it's very easy. I just like had that confidence of like, I know what I'm doing. And this is a cakewalk compared to like I and also like that I listen to podcasts religiously, like I probably listen, I listened all day every day at my day job. And then, you know, in my off hours as well at, you know, one and a half, two times speed. So I would listened to probably like hundreds or thousands of hours over the previous kind of year of podcasts and just like really understood the content side of things, as well as the audio production side of things. So I was kind of just had that confidence of though, of like, even though I don't have any work under my belt of, you know, actual podcast clients, I've like recorded albums. I've like recorded my own stuff. I've like worked with people in the past in way more complex audio projects. And I really like understand this medium probably more than any of my clients did at that point or the people I was pitching because I just had so much exposure to it. And so I think like the confidence was the big thing that really allowed me to like go out there and pitch myself. I think that in a way that would be difficult for other people.
0: One of the themes I see with creators and people who work in the media space is the ability to create great media is really proportional to the amount that you consume. Alan Gannett talks about this in his book, The Creative Curve, the, I think it's called the 25% rule, where he says 25% of great creatives time is spent consuming media in and around their sphere. And so you're consuming podcasts all the time. It's kind of subconsciously training your taste, training your instincts, coupled with this technical knowledge that I think most people don't see as well, gives you this kind of fusion of art and science. and That's pretty interesting to me because that's really what makes you unique as an operator Mm -hmm. and is very hard to replace because that's just naturally who you are.
1: Yeah. And I think like that's an interesting theme that I've noticed as well. I feel like everybody develops this over time, but you don't often realize like what are these things that kind of make you a linchpin or irreplaceable? And I think like early on it was those. Now I think it's much more like it's become the marketing side of things where like at one point I had the content and the production, but like it was kind of getting more crowded in podcasting where now everybody was kind of on the same playing field. There were like a lot of audio engineers who were coming into podcasting because ironically, there was more money to be made there than in music. And they also like were consumers of content. So it seemed like, you know, the bar was raising on the quality of content that was out there. And then you had also like all these, you know, big media companies coming in, which like, I don't have experience creating you know, an NPR style show, or I have limited experience, but not like at that scale with where you're really, you know, spending hundreds of 1000s of dollars producing a series or something like that, like that was outside of what I had experience doing. And so partly naturally, I think I just started gravitating more towards the marketing side. And so then had this technical and the marketing side, and this like, creative approach to both, I think, which Now is really what I see, like not a lot of people who are really technical hate the marketing or and or creative side. And even like a lot of the creative people hate the marketing side. And I'm just like, give me all of it. And like, (laughs) let me just like swim in it. It's uh, I love like the intersection of all those things.
0: Yeah. And especially now where there's just more technology that you can use than ever that augments your creative stack. I think of something like Descript, for example, where I can upload the transcript Mm -hmm. to this podcast and very easily chop it up, have it edited by a team. Or I was just having coffee yesterday with the founders of a tool called Capsho, C-A-P-S-H-O. And they allow you to upload your podcast transcript and then turn that into a LinkedIn article, into a blog, into a YouTube description. It kind of metadataizes your content. So that's something that would have just taken me, I don't know, an hour, two hours to do. And now I can have a machine do it in 20 minutes. So it's really kind of the intersection of technology and creativity that I think where a lot of this value is created in. I know a big thing for you as well is when you think about developing shows with your clients and the people who take your courses, you're very audience first in your thinking. So making sure that you have a group of listeners that you can appeal to. How did you think about that yourself when you were developing Podcast Marketing Academy? Because for those of you who don't know, you really target podcasters who are looking to grow. So you assume that there is some baseline of production already there and that they're looking to go from that one level up to the next level rather than kind of helping them get set up. So that's quite specific to me. How did you go about figuring out that that was the audience you really wanted to serve? Yeah, so it's interesting, because like I mentioned, coming into
1: podcasting, actually, from this like online business and like, you know, Pat smart passive income, Pat Flynn's show was like one of the first shows I listened to. And so there was always this idea of like building courses and something that could kind of, you know, be sold. You create once what's Jack Butcher's line? Um Create one, sell. I can't even remember it now. Um, sell, twice, something like once, that. sell twice. Build one, sell twice. Build one, sell twice. Yeah. And so, like, that idea had always been the back of my mind, but I was always kind of like, what kind of course am I going to create? And, like, the obvious one was like a podcast launch course. But I always had this imposter syndrome and this kind of like, there's already like a hundred courses out there. I mean, at that time, there weren't that many, but like, the big ones were like Pat Flynn's and John Lee Dumas, which like everybody took those because there was only like two really well-known courses. And I was like, what am I going to create that's better than what those guys have done? And so I just like never got around to creating the the podcast launch course. I like started writing it it out like a curriculum a few times, but I was like, there's nothing original here. I don't have my own audience that I can sell that to. And like, it's not something to like build an audience around because it's not really unique. And so I just like never got around to doing it, which I'm actually kind of grateful for in hindsight. But when I started, like the idea for Podcast Marketing Academy came from looking at my own clients and seeing that about half of them were growing really consistently. And like over the long term, over like the year or two or three that I'd worked with them, like they just continued to grow. And it was just like a steady trajectory upward. And then there were these other ones where like, they were kind of like, it was in fits and starts or they were just plateaued. And they, you know, maybe they grew to 500 downloads an episode, but they couldn't get past that or whatever that number was, they just kind of got stuck. And so I started worrying to myself, like, man, if my clients' shows aren't growing, they're going to quit and then I'm going to be out clients. And so it's like bad for me if they don't see results. And so I started thinking like, well, I better like figure out what can I do to help them grow their shows? And so I was thinking, well, I'll I'll start just by interviewing all my clients, the ones who are growing really quickly and the others who are plateaued and just see what the differences are between those two. What are the good ones doing and the other ones that are struggling are not doing? And then I kind of expanded that to other people in the podcast industry and just basically did probably a few dozen interviews with people who were both having success and who were kind of like flatlining and starting to, you know, as I did these interviews, kind of just realized like, oh, there's it became pretty obvious that there's trends that were emerging. And from there, basically, after doing these interviews, I would just like wrote everything out and kind of put my notes together and organize them. And there was the curriculum kind of right there. And so originally, I was kind of wanting to target the course specifically to my clients. And so Uh, And it was going to just be an internal course. I'd actually made a previous course that was like on audio production because it was just all these things where I had to like spend all this time telling clients how to like set up their equipment and all this stuff. And I was was so boring and like (laughs) such a waste of my time that I was like, if I can just give them a course where they can just do all this on their own and I can walk them through it async, that's way better for me. And so that I kind of made that course and I was like, well, I'll do a marketing one to complement it. It'll be a value add for our agency where like somebody who signs on to work with us also gets access to this course, which they still do. But now I'm kind of at the last minute before I started recording everything and really finalizing the content, I was like, actually, I'm going to put this as like an audience or, or public facing course first, but I'll just give my clients all access to it. And so that was kind of like where it started. And just by almost by virtue of creating it for my existing clients who'd all been creating their shows for probably, you know, a year or two already. I think that's where it kind of that targeting came in. And then I would say like, it was kind of like a year into it, I'd already been creating it for a year, maybe a year and a half, where I just realized the more conversations I was having with people in the podcast industry, I kind of intended that just to be my like one marketing course. And then I'd make like another course on some other area of podcasting. But I started having all these conversations where people were just like, Oh, you know, about podcast marketing, like, you're one of like, five people, And I heard that enough times, like literally, people say five people that I started asking, like, who are these other people? And they started saying like the same names back to me every time. And I was like, Oh, there's like, literally, five people. And then I kind of realized, like, I think I should just make this my niche here. Like, I like marketing more than any other aspect of podcasting. Most other people don't like marketing, and they're scared of it, or they don't know how to do it. And so Like I can just really easily lean into that niche and I've already built this great asset and just kind of double down on it. So that's where it kind of like over time I grew into it more and more and have, have since kind of kept refining the targeting and also the content and all that.
0: What I want to call out as well from your product strategy there is that you went from focusing or thinking that you were going to have a really broad suite of tools to help the podcaster, the creator, to picking one very specific part of the creator's process and doubling down on that. And that to me is kind of where I would actually recommend starting is for people who want to help build with creators or offer a service in that kind of piece of the creator economy is to take one bit of the workflow and then really double down on that. You said five people. I had drinks this week with Dan and Jonas from Bumper. I think the number that got thrown around was like seven. There's yeah. like seven folks who really understand consistent podcast audience growth. And so what's cool is you can become known as the audience growth guy, you know, mm-hmm. for the indie shows that are, that are up and coming. And so that lets you, the specialization lets you carve out a reputation in a way that being broad, it's much harder to do. And you also need the resources to go broad as well, which probably means being part of a company, being part of a team at least. So I think it's a really smart way to approach things. I
1: mean, like a lot of it, I feel like so much of my stuff is in hindsight, you realize why it worked. And I think there's like some strategy to it sometimes, but you don't really realize what you're doing. Like, I've just started thinking about this so much. This goes back to your idea of consuming, spending 25% of your time, like consuming content, or just like living in the world that you want to contribute to, is that I feel like there's this, like intuition is this hugely underrated thing that it's like impossible. You can't teach it. It's like you just need to live in the world that you want to be a part of and develop it and like try things. You need to like do things that work and do things that don't work so that you can kind of get the sense of like, oh, I remember like this feeling when I did that thing that worked. And I remember I had this feeling when I did that thing that didn't. And you start to like stack up like, well, I've, okay, now I've done like 50 things that have worked and like 300 things that haven't. And I can kind of sense like in advance, like I know this type of thing is probably has a good chance of success and this kind of thing doesn't. And you, it's not even conscious it's just like you kind of lean in one way intuitively and you end up being successful and I think like that compounds over time and I think that that's one of the reasons why people who just like keep playing the game for like you talk about like Mr. Beast or someone like that who's been you know 15 or however many years creating videos it's like you just understand at some point like what's going to do well and what's not going to do well and all the stuff that you almost like if you're not like a natural teacher, you couldn't really explain to someone. And maybe you're not even aware of what you're doing and why it works. But there's just this like intuitive knowing of like, well, I just feel like I should do this. I can't explain why and I'm going to do it. And it ends up working out more often than not. So I think that that's been a big part, like looking back in hindsight, I'm like, I don't know why I did that in the moment. But in hindsight, I I understand it was a really good strategy.
0: Let's dig into intuition, because I'm very much with you. And this is something that. I set as an intention this year is to try to bet on my instincts more and so I'm listening to my gut a lot more on on decisions and I'm happy to say it works out a good chunk of the time. How would you think about let's apply this to a real problem or challenge? I think one of the big things that I took away from when I did podcast marketing academy was this idea of creating concepts that haven't been heard before. And that if you're going to get a show that is going to get traction it needs to be or able to answer the question, why would someone listen to this show when they can get millions of shows elsewhere? What is it gonna provide that no one else can get? So when you think about using instinct to develop show concepts and create compelling hooks, how have you done that in the past?
1: Yeah, so I think the first thing, there's a fantastic newsletter called Formats Unpacked, and it's by, Uh, I can't remember what the company is, but they do another newsletter as well that I think is bigger. I think it's called Story Things and they're a content marketing or kind of marketing agency in the UK. And I love this newsletter Formats Unpacked because essentially they do what I think everybody should do, who's going to be creating media. And I think they get guest writers essentially every week who break down the format of some media out there and kind of explain what the hook is, why it's interesting, like what makes this all gel together. And there's a lot of stuff that I've never heard of. Like, they'll do YouTube channels, they'll do podcasts, they'll do newsletters, they'll do TV shows. I think they've even done some, like, movies or documentaries. But you start to realize, like, everything that's compelling, like, usually what I think about is that there's this inherent tension in it. And so there's these, like two or more ideas that like shouldn't quite go together or they seem to be conflicting in some way and you this is like the creative part and this is like the art of it you found some way to like make the through line really satisfying and like people get it in some way and so i think like one that comes to mind a lot and this is the tension is is kind of nuanced like one really obvious one that there's a podcast called sex talk with my mom which is just very clear what the tension like it just feels uncomfortable we can all like picture that like having to talk about sex with our mom and so that the actual premise is that the mom is the son is a comedian the mom is a like newly single self-proclaimed cougar and it's just like can you imagine having to like talk with your mom about her like relationships as she's in her like 50s now or something like that and in a like explicit way on a podcast like it just feels like really uncomfortable that we all get that and it also feels like oh man I'm so glad that's not me but I want to hear how that conversation goes and so there's this like this really interesting part where you're like, what will this be like, like, it's not just you don't know what you're going to get almost beforehand. And so I think that that's like a one example of this kind of tension that's inherent in a lot of great formats, you think as well about like, a lot of reality shows have this element of everybody's like stuck in this house, and they're all like, you know, whatever age, and there's all this like drama and relationships and all this stuff. And it's like, that's where the tension comes in is because, you know, like, all these 20 year olds can't possibly live in this one house without it going horribly awry and all this like drama unfolding. So it's like creating this environment almost where who knows what's going to happen. And so like that's a certain type of concept where some shows are much more like planned out in advance. And so like one type of concept that I think about is like I called I would refer to it as a gimmick. So this is more where there's like some device that's used to explore the topic. And I actually learned a lot about this from a guy named Jay Acunzo. So if he's like the master of concept development, and so everybody should definitely check out his stuff. But one of the examples that I think I heard about from him is this show called Three Books. And I think the author and host is Neil Pazrika. I'm not actually sure how to pronounce his last name. But essentially, it's like each episode invites on a kind of celebrity or like author, well known author interview show, which there are so many of those that they're kind of boring, like it's just having on like, this is how most people would approach a show like that. It's like, well, I'm going to interview well known authors and talk to them about their process or whatever it is to help aspiring authors, you know, understand the secrets of writing well or something like that. And so it feels like, oh, yeah, that feels like a really good show because like there's all these famous people I'm going to be able to get on. But there's no hook to it. There's nothing like that makes it really interesting unless you can get these like guests that nobody else can get on or you're already famous. Like if Stephen King did that show, people would listen to it. But if you are just like some small author who you're looking to build your audience through this that's not really going to hook people in. And so what Neil did with three books is instead of just saying like, I'm going to talk to authors about their process and the, you know all of this kind of generic interviews, he said, I'm going to invite these authors on and the, each interview is going to focus on their three favorite books and like what they learn from those essentially. And so there's this kind of like device that guides the conversation and it provides this like hook and structure to it where it's like, oh yeah, that's, I would really love to hear what Stephen King's three most formative books are for him. And the funny thing is the reason we shy away from shows like this I think is because we think like it's going to limit the interview but really it opens up new territory because it gets people off the standard kind of tropes that they talk about or the standard questions and it allows this like new way to explore this person and their process and you realize that like All of a sudden this person says like, well, yeah, this is one of my, this is an obscure one, but like this book in a weird way really influenced me. And it made me think about this forever. And like, they've never told that story before because nobody would have thought to ask it. And I think that that's where you start to get into concepts like that. And immediately there's this hook. It becomes really tangible about what separates it from the sea of other shows that are really generic. And so hopefully those kind of couple of examples help frame this idea of like what a
0: concept is. Yeah, that's fascinating couple things to pick up on there. This idea of tension that you mentioned, I think that that can often be expressed as an unanswered question. So a show plants a seed right at the start of the episode. If you look at Serial, for example, which is the podcast that put podcasting into popular culture, the unanswered question from minute one was, is this man innocent or guilty? And it took you a whole season to decide whether he was or he wasn't. And it hooked people in because there's something that they need to know the answer to. And humans don't like uncertainty. We like resolution. We like comfort. And so when a piece of media creates uncertainty, you're naturally drawn to the end of that, to want to figure out what that is. I also love this idea of the device. That's a term that I haven't heard before, but that's a great way of framing what a very unique hook is. So the device could be these three books, the device could be a newly single mum who really doesn't care what people think about her sex life. That in and of itself, these kind of odd quirks are what orient a conversation. And the guest on the last episode I recorded, Zach Moreno from Squadcast was saying that, design has constraints. That's what sets it apart from art. Art is unconstrained, design is constrained. And so when you're creating a podcast, if you have this intentionality in mind, you're essentially designing a device that's going to constrain the conversation around the device. And so in the case of subject matter, the device is the playbook that we're unpacking. So in your case, you're world-class at coming up with these formats. And it's no surprise that you know who the master of concept development is, that you know the newsletter for it, that you've got three examples off the top of your head. Like that's very clearly what's you. And that's what I wanted to dig into on the show. So I think a challenge to creators is thinking about what is your device for your show and then how can you use that to guide the conversation too.
1: Yeah and I think like the other thing is that again we start hearing about constraints as creators and we think well yeah I want to be an artist I want to do it all but I think like we think that it reigns in the conversation and I kind of mentioned this before but one of the ways i don't know that i've actually like talked about it this way before but i think as you constrain it it becomes like it's almost like it becomes sharper and narrower so it's like a needle that can like pierce deeper into something and so i think so many shows suffer from being really surface level because they don't have those constraints to be able to cut down into like the real heart of something and so i think often like the constraints actually instead of going broad they allow for depth in a a way that generic shows don't and so i think most people would not necessarily say they want to have broad surface level conversations. I think people want to go, most people who are drawn to create podcasts probably want to go deeper. And I think that, yeah, that's a great way to kind of do that is to find that unique angle into, you know, a person, your guest, a way that they like haven't been approached before with the questions or or anything like that. Another like classic example that probably many people are aware of, of a gimmicky type show with a device is Hot Ones, the YouTube show, where it's again, it's like a celebrity interview show, but they have these like, this is kind of a wacky one because they have these like, they eat five progressively hotter hot wings, one for each question. And so there's this like unique, hooky element about it, too, that doesn't really make it doesn't need to make sense like and I I wouldn't say that every show should be random like that. But it is like it's interesting. It's like you kind of get a sense for like as soon as you hear it, you understand why it's interesting. It, It at least has some like shock factor to it kind of. And so I think like that's the goal when I think about concepts and this like take this with a grain of salt because some shows the point is that you are the host and you're looking to build your audience around that and maybe you're like i'm okay if it takes longer i'm going to take attention elsewhere and funnel it back to the show but i think if you really want to grow as fast as possible it shouldn't matter who the host is it should be like the concept should stand on its own where it's like you tell somebody hey there's this podcast where you know about this topic where they you know, presented or explore it in this method. And people are like, wow, I would listen to that show. And then when you like put on the perfect host, who is like the person who's made to host that show, which is hopefully you, all of a sudden, it becomes even more kind of magical. But I think that a lot of times people think about like, it's like, well, I want to do this show, and I want it to be this way. And it's that it's opposite of audience first, it's not starting with like a show that could anybody could come in, and it would still be interesting, almost.
0: Well, That's a a juicy idea. To challenge that, though, I do think that the concepts that really work are in tandem with the host's unique strengths. So if I take Mm -hmm. conversations with Tyler, for example, his interviews have become a little bit more in-depth, but for a while his format, and I used to love this, was he would just ask a question, the guest would give some incredibly interesting answer, and then he would go straight to the next question. He didn't allow himself to follow his curiosity. And I didn't mind at all because he was so clever that the questions were all bangers. But that was only possible because Tyler Cowen is so smart and it plays very specifically to his academic background and how thoughtful and curious he is. If I tried to do that with subject matter, I'm under no illusions that the conversation wouldn't be that great. Because for me, I'm good at being curious and picking up on things people say and opening doors and rabbit holes in the conversation. And so... That, I think, is a good example of where the concept is made in tandem with the host. So that's all I would challenge there is that I do agree that concepts should stand by themselves. But in order to think audience first, you do also have to understand your unique strengths as a creator, because that's going to inform the format that you create.
1: Yeah, I 100% agree with that. And I think that like that's where the magic of great shows is, is that like, there is this inherent tension to it and this like interesting concept but like nobody could have created it but that one person like they have their weird, overlapping interests and curiosities like I think about this with my so I write a newsletter called creative wayfinding. And only after writing like for a year for like 50 issues or more, I realized like, that there was this through line that tied through my whole life kind of and I was like, wow, that is crazy. I never really realized that. And it took like feedback from other people it was uh, my marketing assistant at the time, she read it as well. And she was like, Yeah, you know, you really like speak in a lot of metaphors. And so it, essentially, like, it's a newsletter about doing creative work. And, but I started like leaning as I got a, became and was trying to intentionally become a better storyteller started leaning more into stories. And she was like, Yeah, they're always really like, you know, travel or adventure or exploration oriented. And I'd like never clued into this. And Then when I when she said it, I was like, Oh, that's really interesting. And so I started thinking about it more. And then I realized, like, wow, I've been traveling full time, I mentioned, like, this was the reason I got into online business. So I've been traveling full time now for six years at this point. And I never like talk, I don't want to be a travel writer. I don't talk about that at all in the newsletter. But what I realized was that there was something like even before that, like from childhood, almost that was like, I've always had this one of my like, specific memories from childhood, it was just always like I would spend all my time on my bike and it was always like about like pushing a little bit further, like the boundary of the neighborhood that I've explored before. And like always going just a little bit further, there was always this kind of like hunger, like thirst for the horizon almost, I think of it as. And then realizing that like that led me to travel, that probably led me into an alternative career path where just this like, I wonder what else is out there, what else could I do? And then realizing that like, that so had become a part of how I wrote about anything, in this case, it happened to be creative work. And I realized like, wow, nobody else could have really come up with this concept. And the beautiful thing about that, I kind of had this moment where I was like, I have no competition. Like this is like what David Perel would call a personal monopoly where it's just like, yeah, it might like not be the hookiest thing that people don't get immediately. But like once people get in, the feedback's amazing. And I'm kind of just like, I just got to keep writing this. And like just 10 years from now, like there's nobody else could possibly do this. There's no competition. And that's all of a sudden becomes like a really like reassuring place to create from and kind of like a freeing place rather than when you're creating something that's generic that there's like I think of like curated newsletters kind of I think that a lot of them are dying off now but like in the past two years there's just been so many especially in the creator economy and most of them just share all the same stuff and it's kind of like for a while I was kind of looking at those and I was like man they're all growing so much faster than me like maybe I should switch to doing something like that and it was kind of like right around then when I had this light bulb moment and I was like Oh, these aren't going to stick around, though, like they don't have anything that's unique and defensible about them that keeps people coming back. And it's like exhausting to have to like keep finding all these links every week to keep up with this. And so I think like when you land on something that is really like a well-matched concept or, you know, creative project that really like you're the only person that could have come up with that. That's what
0: I think we should all be aiming for. Wow, so that's where the wayfinding comes from. That is such a cool pattern recognition. The
1: even funnier thing is that I came up with the name before I actually realized the through line, which I was kind of like not sold oh, on the wait. name. And I was like, this is kind of gets at what it's about. And then it, huh. I got more clarity over the next six months. And I was like, I'd been kind of like, ah, this is a good enough name for now. And then now I'm like, this is the only possible name that this could be, which is kind of
0: crazy. Hmm. I'm going to pitch you on a V2 concept that I just I was building out in my head while you were saying that. Creative Compass, helping creatives find their direction. That to me is... So the funny thing is like, do you know Jay Klaus?
1: Yeah. So his newsletter, he's now rebranded it, but I think it actually was Creative Compass. He rebranded it. From something earlier. I think first he was Work in Progress was this newsletter. Then he rebranded it to Creative Compass like last year sometime and now he's done his whole rebrand to Creator Science but I was actually thinking about that name quite oh, a bit cool. before and then I didn't choose that. I chose Wayfinding instead and then he did the Compass thing and I was like ah, I'm kind of glad I didn't go with that because he might have, I'm like yeah. way smaller than him, he might have taken it anyways and it pulled the rug out from under me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, you dodged a bullet there. Yeah, I, I do think it's really heartwarming as well just hearing you share that you were able to identify your unique strengths by reflecting on the experiences and topics that you'd written about. And I think that's, there's such a powerful insight there for creators where I was working with a coach a couple of years ago, fantastic man called Rich Keller. And Rich kept saying this line pushing me to say, Ben, your story is your credibility. Because when you understand your story, you're going to understand what your strengths are, your, the value you bring to the world and how to shape that narrative for other people. And I do believe that now. And I think seeing that framework come to life with you, where you've been a serial traveler for six years and the the things that you most enjoy are very linked to those experiences and then being able to integrate that into a brand, like that's very you and no one can clone that. That's very Jeremy. And then if you layer the ability to fuse art with technology or, or data as well, like, bingo, that you have a defensible business. So really cool to, to hear you share that. And I think this sets us up really nicely for our last segment of today, which is our lightning round. So in the lightning round, I'm going to ask you four questions and you've just got to share the first thing that comes off the top of your head. Really quick fire. You ready? Let's do it. All right, here we go. First question. What's one piece of software or hardware that you can't live
1: without? Oh, Notion. No, that's like the fastest answer that I could have come up with to any question. Uh, (laughs) You mentioned software, Notion, 100%.
0: That's what he lives on. Yeah, I'm taking notes in Notion right now. So a man after my own heart here. Okay, second question. This is a good one for you, actually. What's your favorite podcast that you're listening to right now? I listen to so few podcasts like I feel like I listened to almost
1: my life's allotment in the previous years and now I listen to maybe one a week. So I've been on a we mentioned we just mentioned Jay Klaus. So I've been listening to his show lately. I listened to it when it first came out in like 2020 and binged through all the episodes and then kind of let it go for two years almost. And now I've come back to
0: it and I'm really loving it. Yeah, Creative Elements is a great show. Um, Third question. What's the most fun that you have when you're working? Lately, it's been
1: design. So I'm in the middle of a launch right now that's been creating a bunch of like promo assets. And I am not, I think now I like almost would say I'm something of a designer, but my partner is like an actual designer. And so she's like helped me throughout the years become a much better designer. And that's just something that like, I'll probably never do professionally, but I just get lost in it and just love playing in Photoshop and Illustrator and Figma and like all the tools, um, even though it probably takes me longer
0: than somebody who is like actually a pro at it. Do you know, design for me is one of those really interesting things where I just love tinkering in Figma. I took Jack yeah. Butcher's Visualize Value course a couple of years ago, and man, it's just so easy for me to get in flow visualizing mm-hmm. all the ideas. So I'm with you. It might not be the best use of my time, but it's definitely some of the most fun. Yeah. Okay. Last question for you, Jeremy, today. If you were going to give one piece of advice to a creator who's starting out right here today as we record this on the 6th of October 2022, what would that one piece of advice be?
1: I think like find a way to lower the bar for yourself. I think my story about my newsletter kind of really illustrates the journey for most creators is that you just have no idea what you're doing when you're starting out. And even like at this point, I've been creating stuff for over 10 years when I started the newsletter and I still feel like Anything you create, like you're not going to actually figure out what it is till you're, you've been doing it for six months or a year or whatever it is. So like, don't stress too much like make something that's like that you're proud to share, but don't get stuck in perfectionism or anything like that. And understand that like, this is the first draft of something and like the next draft is going to be just so much better than whatever you come out out of the gate with.
0: Yeah. I think it was Stephen King who said, do not come lightly to the blank page. The blank page <laughs> is one of the most intimidating things for a writer and a creator starting from scratch. So just get going and then iterate from there, I think is is great advice. Jeremy, this has been so much fun. Thank you for coming yeah. on letting us get a window into how you think for half an hour or so. If people want to keep up with you and your ideas, where are the best places that they can go online? Yeah, so probably the the place I'm most active is Twitter. And so I'm on Twitter at
1: I am Jeremy Enns. And if you want to connect with me anywhere else, uh, I've created a page, counterweightcreative.co slash subject matter, all one word. And you can go there and I've got a bunch of links to all my stuff, Twitter included, email address, if you want to get in touch, both my newsletters, (laughs) all the good stuff that I've got going on. So counterweightcreative.co slash subject matter.
0: Perfect. Thanks so much, Jeremy. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in. I'd love to hear what you thought of the episode and any ideas you've got for future content. You can email me directly at ben@workweek.com. To keep up to date with the very latest content, make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with a friend who might find it useful? I'll see you next time.